0: Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is former governor, former United States Senator, I guess I should say former Secretary of State, Mr. Evan Bay. We are joined by Jim Shella, former political and statehouse reporter for Wish TV. Governor Bay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Robert, it's great to be uh, great to be with you.
0: Well, it's I know you got a lot going on and we're very very appreciative Uh, first, before we say anything else on behalf of the podcast, condolences on the passing of your wife, Susan, It was a beautiful tribute that I read about, and I know Jim was there. And so thank you, especially in the time of your grief to give us an hour or so of your time.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. Uh, it was, um, meant a lot to our family to know that she was loved by so many Hoosiers and, um, people who were at the service and the people who just kept us in their hearts and prayers, um. That's what gets,
2: gets you through the tough times. So, thank you for your for your sentiments,
0: Jim. Do you want to weigh in real quick?
2: Well, I'll just say that uh, the lasting impression uh, from the service was uh, the, the eulogies offered by your two sons. Uh, obviously, that's uh, a, a, a tough assignment for any child and uh, they both uh performed with with flying colors which is not necessarily what you're looking for at a memorial service but uh, great tributes to susan
1: well they are her uh lasting living legacy and she poured herself she she's the most devoted mother i mean i've ever seen and uh she helped those boys in all sorts of ways and um you know they'll uh hopefully live their lives in honor of her and uh, i was I was proud of the way they handled it. Frankly, they handled it better than me. <laughs> so um, maybe there is hope for the future.
0: I remember meeting you a few times. And the last time I met you was in the mayor's office. And it was the only time that we had really had a chance to chat. And you were very kind. I was working for Greg Ballard at the time. And we talked for a couple of minutes about just about your family. And I remember telling you, and and you, you kind of put your hand on, on the side of my arm and said, thank you. But I remember telling you about um, my memory. I was I was young, maybe eleven, uh, of my mother crying when your mother died of cancer.
1: Yeah, um, we've had uh, a history with cancer in our family. My mother got breast cancer; she so was only thirty nine, and uh, and she went into re- remission after treatment, uh, mastectomy, and radiation and chemo and all that. Uh, said the best six years of her life uh, were after that because she didn't take her life for granted. And really tried to embrace it more, and then it came back and um it took her when I was a freshman in a uh, first year law student, which ironically my son Bo was the first year in law student when um brain cancer took uh took his mom but uh yeah, I think I really have no doubt that my wife and my mother are having a grand old time together <laughs> my, my 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 wife never uh my mother never met my wife vice versa, but uh they had a lot in common, both very outgoing, vivacious people, optimistic, uh, people, uh, persons. And, um, so, uh, um, yeah, my, my sons, uh, I had a pretty tall order and finding a, a woman who would live up to the standard my mother set, and my sons do as well. So I'm sure they'll work that out, but it's, um, yeah, thank you for mentioning my mom. She, uh, as I said at the service, Robert, I started off by saying my father was my best man at our wedding. And as they played the bridal march, she leaned over to me and he said, uh, Congratulations, son, you're out marrying yourself. And, um, <laughs> he was he was—he was absolutely right
0: about that. I don't know how the hell I ended up a Republican because the only two people you couldn't badmouth in my house growing up were Birch Bayh and Andy Jacobs. And I was lucky enough to have had lunch and have a really good friendship with Andy Jacobs, who I just think the absolute world of. And I did a podcast on the memory of your father. I think I even maybe have sent that to you. And it's one of my favorites, Uh, Bob Blameyer and Nancy Pappas and Louis Mayhern came on and really had a terrific discussion about his impact.
1: Well, uh, I'm proud of my father and the um, impact he made on our state and country. He, He led a life worth living, you know, which was devoted primarily to trying to help other people make the most of their lives and so i hope all you don't have to be in public office to do that there are a lot of honorable ways to do that uh, you know any number education healthcare, being in the media trying to keep the citizens informed and knowledgeable about what's going on in the world uh, my son's done tours in the military that's a, a good way to do it so uh and my father did had the privilege of doing that for the people of our state for for many many years and andy was one of my favorites of course um He uh, was a Marine in Korea and was at the Frozen Chosen, which is one of the Marine Corps' toughest, uh, toughest times. And I think that always informed his his, uh, his politics because, you know, anything you're going to encounter in politics, as they say, it ain't beanbag. But (laughs) it can be be as tough as having uh, a million Chinese swarming down on you trying to kill you. (laughs) So um, when I first went to Andy and told him I was thinking about running for office, he said to me, as you know, he had a great sense of humor. He said, well, he said, um, I'll be for you or again, you, whichever will help you the most. <laughs> so I've always remembered that. I also remember he got some, uh, some heated, a uh, letter from a constituent who was really giving him hell about something or other. And Andy reply, he, he got out of replied by saying, uh, dear Mr. Jones, uh, you should know that some nut has apparently gotten hold of your stationery and is sending out uh, letters under your name. I thought you should. I
0: thought you should know. <laughs> I love that
1: story, and I, I, I bet he probably did.
0: I have no. I have no doubt. And as and as someone whose uh, son uh, uh, did two tours over in Afghanistan, uh, thank you for your family's service, for your son's service uh, to the United well, States.
1: That's kind of you to mention. Since my, um, I was with Jim at my wife's memorial a week ago Saturday. My son, he's at the Pentagon today. He just went active duty three days ago, and so he's got an interesting uh, project. It's called. It's all public knowledge. It's Project Maven. There, there's something, something uh, reassuring when you're a parent when your children get their top secret security clearances. You know, because the FBI goes and talks to all your friends and roommates and stuff like that. So both boys have them. In this case, the Marine Corps boy. He finished his first year in law school, and he just always wanted to go active duty. So he, um, they, they reached out to him. And what this involves is we're trying to keep pace with the Chinese. We may be a little bit behind, but it involves the use of artificial intelligence to improve the timing and the accuracy of our drone surveillance platform. So he'll be based in the Pentagon, but going to the Middle East and the Far East. So he's going to be sort of the guy in between uh, the, the technology guys. And the uh, commanders in the field would actually operate uh, the system. So he'll be doing that for the next year. And then he will go back and um, finish up his law studies. And his, uh, he worked at Cummins in Indianapolis this last summer. And he's got a job offer from a law firm in India, Barnes & Thornburg, for next summer. And my other son, the Army boy, he's in his second year of business school. But he, he owes the Army another five months. They uh, took so long. There was a big backlog. And they took so long to get his security clearance done. That he couldn't. He's an intelligence officer. The Marine Corps boy's an infantry commander. The Army boy's an intelligence officer, and he owes the Army another five months at a place called Fort Kajuka out in the desert in Arizona, where they do the um, the intel training. So he'll he'll finish up business school early and then uh, do his um uh his, the training out for the Army, and then he's he's actually he spent this last summer. This kid could do anything. He's smart like his mom, and uh, he he was with the Colts this last summer, living with the team taking the players around, helping with salary cap management and a little data analytics. But he's kind of hoping, again, he could do Wall Street, he could do Silicon Valley, he could do anything, but he's kind of hoping that he can um, get an entry-level job with the Colts. And he said, if he could just do anything with his life, he'd love to run an NFL franchise someday. So I guess if you're young, why not pursue your dream?
0: Well, I'd love I'd love to relate to, uh, Mer- since I was in the Army from 87 to 90, I relate that the one son's doing army intelligence and can't wait to tell Greg Ballard that the other one's just the Marine. He'll,
1: he'll, <laughs> well, I served on the intelligence. Uh, yeah, the, the Marine Corps boy is now a second Lieutenant, the army boys still a first Lieutenant, but, uh, the, um, yeah, I served on the Senate, Senate intelligence committee for 10 years. And I always hoped that that was not an oxymoron. So I'll let, um, <laughs> let, let, let you, let you and the former mayor argue about army intelligence.
0: Governor Rabai was born in December, 1955. He's a fellow Capricorn, just like the host of the Leaders and Legends podcast. My birthday is December 22nd. Graduated with honors business economics from Indiana University in 1978. Received his law degree from the University of Virginia in 1981. You graduated from I didn't know this until I was doing my research. You graduated from Indiana University at the same time, the same year as Mayor Greg Ballard, who has his degree in economics. Did you two happen to visit the same keg or know each other at all?
1: I didn't meet that mayor, but I did uh, at least uh, casually uh, get to know the current mayor, Joe Hogsett, when we were uh, down at IU together. But uh, I did not know Greg. So as you mentioned, my degree was based in the business school. So you took the, the core business curriculum, which I uh, have always thought stood me in good stead, but then uh, you with the heavy overlay of economics. And so, and it was actually made a group, was in business economics and public policy, which given where my life ended up leading me was um, pretty good grounding to have. So I, I did not have the pleasure of knowing Greg, but I did meet uh, uh, Joe uh, Hogshead briefly.
0: Evan Bai is one of only at, this is for you, Jim Shella. Evan <laughs> Bai is one of only a few Hoosiers to have won at the top of the ticket at least four statewide elections who are the others
2: oh my goodness uh four statewide elections
0: luger obviously
2: um golly i didn't know i had to have my history hat on here
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know Governor, I thought you'd like this gotcha question. I'm getting ready to. I asked Shella. You know, I'm stumping him here. You know, if only had a TV camera in front of him. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so was Bob Orr Otis Bowen's lieutenant governor twice? Yes, he, he was. But yeah, that's not so, the, the, the top of the ticket. So you. Oh, have, the top at
1: the top of the ticket. Okay. Yeah. So Frank
0: right. O'Bannon doesn't count either. <laughs> You've got Evan By. Twice as governor, twice as Senator, Luger, I think didn't he win six Senate terms. he was going for his seventh right when he right. lost in that ridiculous primary.
1: Don't forget my Secretary of State's race. that happened to be uh that wasn't the top of the ticket though that year. There was a uh, a Senate or didn Quayle got reelected that year.
0: No, but that's still that you' you've won five, Luger's won six, and the other two that I know off the top of my head who've won four are Tim Barry. And Marjo Laughlin, I think. Oh, sure, cool. Marjo
1: Laughlin. Right? Was that tre- Treasure and Otter?
0: I think that. Uh, I think she was. T- she did Treasure and something else. But for right. for to win for at least four statewide elections in Indiana, especially, we should say as a Democrat, is a significant achievement and one of Governor By's uh, certainly shining points on his political resume. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, while we're talking about politics for a second. What was your first political memory? Well, my
1: first political memory would have taken me all the way back to uh, when I was um, seven years old. Just turned seven. Well, actually, I was six. Turns out a little bit later in uh, um, my father's first election, nineteen sixty-two. So, election night, it was went really late. He ended up winning by like one tenth of a percent. I think like ten thousand votes statewide, and so. Uh, they went ahead and put me to bed. My grandfather slept lying on the floor, tried to sleep lying on the floor outside my room so nobody would come in and bother me. But I remember them, uh, you know, kind of, I remember sitting there while they were watching the TV, the black and white screen back in those days and taking phone calls from people around the state trying to figure out what was going on. And then next morning I woke up and asked how it turned out. And they said he, he, he'd won very narrowly. So that's really my first um uh, first political memory.
0: Did he? Who did he beat? Did he beat Jenner or? part who did he be no it was it was Homer K part Homer K yeah what was it like to be in Bloomington for the undefeated 1976 32 and O basketball national championship
1: uh, well actually the team the year before was a little better which lost one game because we had Scotty May was probably our best score and we'd beaten Kentucky by I want to say 24 20 something during the regular season and then he broke his arm and tried to play but wasn't really very effective i think he ended up getting like three or four points uh, and we lost to the, that same Kentucky team by I want to say four in the mid-east regional but that team was a machine um Steve Green was starting at one four we had John Laskowski sort of the sixth man um And then, uh, I mean, they were beating people by an average of 18, 20 points, something like that. Uh, uh, And then, so my first two years at IU, we lost a total of one game, which (laughs) was probably about the same number of football games we won. So um, it was great. You know, we we went to all the games, even when we were up in the nosebleed section and they had a lottery for the tickets. So for a few of them, we get down there in the main level. And it was just, it was great. One of my favorite memories was, I think it may have been 74, 75 team. We were beating the, Illinois team by like thirty something points, and with a minute and a half left, the uh, the uh, the uh, crowd is on its feet, particularly the student section, just chanting "defense, defense." So after the game, um, the Daily Student the uh, Herald Tribune down there went to interview the Illinois coach, and he said, "These are the most bloodthirsty fans I've ever seen. They were showing no mercy, no pity, no nothing. This is just this is just a snake pit, you know here." And then someone informed him that the local McDonald's had uh, had a promotion that if IU held the team their opponent to under 69 points we got a free small coke under 59 points a free small fry and under 49 points a free burger and the Eli and i were stuck at 46 points and so we were all looking forward to that free burger and just uh, calling on the Hoosiers to um, to keep their foot on the pedal. And so I think they had to keep the local McDonald's open till like 3 a.m. To, you had to go with your ticket stub to get your burger. <laughs> and so McDonald's made good in their pledge, but it had to stay open late. And so when, when they explained that to the all night coach, he then realized maybe we weren't quite as bloodthirsty as he thought we were hungry, but not quite as bloodthirsty.
0: <laughs> now you become governor and Jim's Jim Shella is going to talk to you all about that stuff. Uh, your secretary I, of state I, run and take you through that. But did you can, get to, can I say one, can I say one other thing? So, yes, sir.
1: One of, the, one of the kind of most memorable things I did when I was governor was Coach Knight uh, knew I'd been a, a student down there during that time, and he was friendly with my father. And so he invited me. He said, pick a game, pick an away game, uh, come with the team. We'll have you on the team playing. You stay with the team. And so I picked the Ohio State game. So I went down to Bloomington. I got on the team playing. We flew into Columbus. I was at the team dinner the night before, when they're going through their strategy stuff. He had me sitting on the end of the bench during the game. And I'd kind of go up and listen to when they had uh, timeout huddles and stuff like that. I think I went over, did a little color commentary, uh, went into the locker room at halftime, and um, realized the coach was somewhat displeased with their performance during the first half. So I uh, wandered over into the training area to see Damon Bailey get his ankle retake. <laughs> and uh, that was so that was quite a that was quite an experience. And flew back to Bloomington on the. Uh, we were up by eighteen, uh, blew the entire lead, and um, ended up losing the game. So. The players were wondering, when I first got on the plane in Bloomington to go, they go, who's this guy? What's he doing here? And three or four of them, when we got off the plane back in Bloomington, came up and thanked me for being there. It occurred to me, the coach was reading his book on uh, fly fishing on, and just saying nothing. I wasn't going to bother him after a loss. So I was just sitting across from him reading whatever I had. So a very quiet flight back. I think the players realized if the governor hadn't been sitting there, uh, the flight home might have been a little more um, <laughs> pointed
0: well, that's actually you led me exactly where I was going to ask you is, you know, you become governor, you're an IU grad, you were there for the 76 undefeated season. And you know, did you, did you get to know that a lot of these players, whether it was Quinn Buckner, or who I know is very active in Indianapolis community, and some of the others were like, I remember when I used to see you on the quad or something like that. I mean, did you make reestablish some of those connections when you became the governor of our state?
1: Well, you know, the athletes, of course, that was a big-time commitment and all that, and I didn't really get to know, you know, Quinn or Kent. I, I met Kent Benson, you know, years later. He was involved with the um, Association of Christian Athletes and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I got to know a few of them, but I, I did not know them when I was an undergraduate. You know, personally, I just didn't travel in, in those circles. But, I, you know, I'm a big IU fan. By the way, one of the things I learned from Richard Luger, so I'm elected governor, in November of, uh, 88. So I become, um, you know, take office in January. And uh, believe it or not, the Hoosiers had won the peach bowl that previous fall. So there was a home game down in in, uh, Bloomington basketball game, and they were going to present the trophy and the coach and the athletic director were going to accept the trophy and all that. And, um, uh, I hadn't been in office long enough to to make anybody mad or to really make any serious mistakes, but uh, they went ahead and introduced me to the crowd and I'll just say the reception was somewhat mixed, although I was happier to know I got the, the students were a little more favorable than some of the, the wealthier alums who I suspect <laughs> will probably had their sentiments on uh, the other side of the aisle. But yeah, Dick told me, he said, I would just have a standing rule: I never let him mention my name at any athletic event. <laughs> so um, I, I kind of adopted his approach going forward.
0: The last question I want to kind of ask you about your your pre-electoral career is about the Two things. One, the relationship between Senator Luger and your father. Birch Bay famously defeated Richard Luger in 1974 in that Titanic clash and the Watergate year. It was a very close race. Uh, but Senator by prevailed. But they appeared to have a strong working relationship uh, that began two years later in 1976 when Richard Luger was elected to the United States Senate. That's A. And B, uh, what is probably the greatest statewide political upset in Indiana history was when Dan Quayle defeated your father in 1980, when I think Birch Bayh was one of 11 democratic senators who lost that year. Um, mm-hmm. First talk about their relationship very quickly. And then your thoughts on, on 1980.
1: Well, uh, first of all, they had a very good relationship and uh Dick Lugar was a statesman, and I think it's because both of them were in public life and politics for the right reasons, and that was trying to help people out, and they weren't strident partisans, and they weren't ideologues, and I think they were from sort of the old school where uh, you know, people didn't take their politics quite so personally as people are today. I mean, you had differences of opinion. You could debate issues and stuff like that, but that didn't mean you uh, you know, ended up hating the other person. And that sort of thing. So it just was a, it's just a different time, and they were different people. I wish we could have more of their approach in politics today. I tried to, I've got a lot of Republican friends, and I tried to, you know, um, carry my father's approach to that uh, over, uh, both as governor and then uh, when I was privileged to follow in the uh, him in the Senate. Um, 1980. Well, the first thing in terms of you're going to ask me any questions, you or Jim, about my political acumen. Uh, I should probably, in the interest of full disclosure, like, you know, I was the chairman of his losing senatorial campaign. So what do I know? Um, But it's, you know, and I ended up uh, you you mentioned that it's uh, difficult, uh, which I think is a fair assessment. All else being equal for a Democrat to win statewide in Indiana. Uh, And uh, that year, Jimmy Carter was getting shellacked by um, Ronald Reagan. I can't remember what the margin was in our state, but it was you know huge. And so that's just a lot to go up against. And then when I came out of retirement, um, against my wife's better judgment, and I tried to run for the Senate again for all the right reasons, it turned out to be a political miscalculation, but Donald Trump was carrying our state by 20 points that year. So uh, things, the same thing happened to my father. It was sort of an anti-incumbent thing. Uh, even though I wasn't an incumbent, I was kind of viewed that way. And when the... You know, People used to split their tickets a little bit more. Today, particularly for federal offices, it's just become very tribal, and uh, it's really not personal. People just vote for the party that they adhere to, and that's kind of that. It's harder to break through. It might be a little bit easier if you're running for governor, but for a, um, a federal office like Senate, it's just it's just really hard to overcome the underlying predisposition of a, of a state like ours. So that happened to my father in 1980, and then it ended up happening to me. Uh, 30 years later. And that's just that's, uh, Robert, what they would call an occupational hazard of being a Democrat in a conservative (laughs) state like like ours.
0: Well, you I'm going to turn it over to Jim and he's going to start with your 86 race for secretary of state against Rob Bowen. But one of the there are a handful of political accomplishments that I believe stand out. Greg Ballard's reelection in 2011 in Marion County. I think Mitch Daniels carrying Marion County in 2008 when Barack Obama um, carried it by 140,000 votes. And the other one I would say right off the top of my head is you winning governor in 1988 when Bush and Luger are both on the ticket in what was a great Republican year.
1: Yeah. Michael Dukakis lost Michael Dukakis lost that year by, uh, our state by 20%. And I ended up winning by six, which I don't think you could do that today. You know, back then people voted more for the individual. They would be willing to split their tickets a lot more than today, I think. And, uh, people were, you know, today people kind of claim they're independent. Some do, uh, but back then they were actually independent and they'd kind of pick and choose. So, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of a heavy lift, but, uh, People were willing to give me a chance.
0: Tremendous political accomplishment for sure. In 1986, our guest, Evan Bay decided to run for secretary of state. And not only did he run, but he won. And he's probably single-handedly responsible for elevating that office to certainly the primacies for which it is viewed today. Mr. Jim Shella, your turn. <laughs>
2: Well, you, you, Senator, you ran against Rob Bowen in that race, who was the son of Otis Bowen, who was a very popular Indiana governor. And as I recall, the the Republican establishment went to great effort to encourage Rob Bowen to enter that race because they thought the only way to uh, take on a legacy was to find a legacy of their own. Um, I can tell you, I, I went to Bremen, Indiana, where Rob lived, uh, in in an older home on Main Street, to do a profile on him. And after we turned the camera off, he explained to me how they had, uh, he and his wife had remodeled half of that home and he, they were planning the next year to remodel the other half. And I looked at him and I said, aren't you planning to live in Indianapolis? And it was clear that I caught him off guard that, uh, Uh uh, you know, clearly he, he, his heart and soul was not in that race. I don't believe, but, at the same time, you didn't take it for granted, did you?
1: That race? Heck no. Uh, gee, Jim, with uh, I mean, you've you've described the situation uh, pretty correctly. Uh, the polling all showed that you know I was doing very well, and then they convinced Rob to get in it, and so uh, his father was eight. Per- his father Otis Bone was eight percent more popular than my father Birchby, and so Rob was ahead of me by eight points. Uh, I think in our polling with like two weeks to go, he was still up eight points. And so, you know, heck no. I think our chances of winning that election were probably one in three, something like that. So, um, no, I didn't take that for granted.
2: And as I recall, uh, a big factor in that race was radio uh, commercials that aired over the last weekend, correct?
1: Well, it was TV for the last three weeks and then radio as well. So we saved our money for the end because we knew that the other side would have a lot more money. And so we came out, uh, you know, with very high levels of advertising in a fairly short period of time. And as you recall, I think Rob is a good guy and he really is a good guy. But I think he was pretty happy being a judge up there and living his life up there. And then they, they convinced him to, to get in this race. And as you recall, they had to Uh, put him on the Republican State Central Committee payroll, which there's nothing illegal about that, nothing unethical. But as you recall, uh, the Republican Party led by Governor Orr had, um, our listeners may not uh, remember this, they may not even think it's true, but it is, Uh, whenever you would buy a vanity license plate in the state, part of that fee you would pay would go to the political party of the governor. And they um, they were in the process of phasing that out, but hadn't phased it out yet. And so that ended up becoming an issue, which then um, kind of turned an eight-point deficit into what ended up being uh, an eight-point lead. But it had to happen in a fairly short period of time. But we had we had very high le- we had very high levels of uh, of uh, advertising, and uh, the Republican State Party didn't re- they never responded, and I think that's because they thought we were going to run out of money, but we we didn't.
2: And you, you talked about meeting Joe Hogsett at Indiana University. He was your campaign manager in that race, correct? That's that's correct. And I think he
1: agreed to work for the princely annual sum of like $16,000. So uh, when Joe says that he's frugal, he, he's been frugal for a long time. It's true.
2: <laughs> so you turn around and, and decide to run for governor uh, in 1988. Um, and, and again, the Republicans uh, – decided that they didn't want to take you head on uh they, they um, pursued a residency case they they tried to make the case that uh you had uh violated uh, the residency requirement to run for governor in Indiana which is 5 years um and uh there was a trial um did you ever worry that that residency case would be successful i uh, i did Uh, A couple of times. So first they
1: were because, um, again, John Mutz is a a fine person, but in the polling, I was running ahead of John by like eight to 10 points. And so obviously they were concerned about that. And so they were first hoping to take me off the, um, you know, have me taken off the ballot. Well, I'd had a very bright individual named David Hamilton, who's now a Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals judge. Uh, Yale Law School grad, one of the smartest people I know. He was a Barnes and Thornburg in those days, and uh, he had researched all this. So I was fairly confident that on the merits, uh, I would win, because I had never given up my. It's. It, I don't want to get too legalistic here, but it all turns on the question of where your permanent home is. You know, you're allowed to leave Indiana for uh, some interim period as long as you intend to come home, and it's kind of your permanent home, which in my case it always had been. Which, by the way, Jim, one of the key pieces of evidence at the trial was even while I was out of the state for about a year and a half, I maintained a daily subscription to the Indianapolis star. So who does, who, who does that if you don't intend to come home? So in any event uh, that they, they were hoping to win and, you know, the the makeup of the Supreme court was four Republican appointees and one Democrat and the Democrat rec- recused himself. So I went home and told my wife, I said, sweetheart, you know, it's, it's all over. I think this is probably just not going to go our way here, but, um, you can read about all this. Joe Hogsett wrote a thesis on it, actually, uh, and he, about a two hundred page thing, getting to all the the ins and outs of this. And I think originally the justices were going to be split two to two, but that they ended up ruling four to nothing. Uh, that I had been a that I was not an illegal alien. That I had been a you know always had been born in Union Hospital in Terre Haute, Indiana, and always you know had intended to remain a Hoosier. So. Uh, there was all that, but you know, when when the Democrat recused himself, yeah, I did think that. Um, who knew how it was going to work? But there was another reason, Jim, which you can appreciate for them doing this. Uh, in the process of the litigation, uh, they weren't able they weren't able to engage in discovery, which was uh, you know a political opponent's dream. So they were able to get copies of every check I had written for years, copies of my credit card statements for years, copies of my phone records for years. I mean, everything. They were able to do a complete uh, you know, x-ray of my life. I'm, I remember, I remember uh, sitting on the side to take the stand under oath and be you know, cross-examined by their attorney, and I remember him looking at me saying, I, we've got a check here showing that you purchased a couch in Washington, D.C. Uh, doesn't that show that you had intended to remain there? And I looked, and I said, uh, no, sir, that, that shows that I didn't intend to sit on the floor. So in any event, they were able to <laughs> – they were able to just, you know, just just go, do a deep dive, everything about me in every which way. And so that was, I think they were greatly disappointed that they didn't uh, find anything, but uh, they, they didn't know that before they began the exercise. So it, they, they did it for that reason, too.
0: Governor, uh, before uh, Joe Hogsett became mayor, he sent me a copy of his thesis, the one oh, okay. you just described. Have you read it? Uh-huh. I have.
1: I, it's been long enough ago. I can't tell you. It's on the top of my mind, but I did. I did look through it.
0: Uh, one last question, and I'll let Jim continue. Do you get the sense that the Republicans were just scared of you, of what of what uh, uh, Evan by candidacy could mean for that race, and what an Evan well, by uh, governorship could mean politically I, for the next ten, twenty years?
1: Well, I'll let you make that assessment, Robert. But I will say I think that the, the, the then leadership of the Republican Party not Governor or John Mutz, but the other political types. Um, I, I think they'd been in office for so long, 20 years, they just kind of thought it was their birthright. And they just thought that you know uh, no one should challenge them and that they thought that this was a potential challenge and they were willing to go to great lengths to try and uh, see that uh, the status quo prevailed and they continued to kind of control everything. So um, did that make them frightened? Yeah, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I guess you, looking at their actions, you might conclude that. But so by the way, there's another thing. There's another thing in Joe's thesis there, which I recall, Jim, you'll appreciate this. So yeah. um, the, the then leader of the Rep- chairman of the Republican Party. So I, I announced the secretary of state you know, all the statewide officials, this may still be the case, got a free car. And so, um, you know, to use to drive around the state. So I announced I wasn't going to take the free car. Uh, I was just going to use my own car. And the then Republican Party chairman uh, issued a, uh, a Press release claiming that I had committed a felony uh, because I was attempting to bribe the voters, and so my response to that was: uh, these guys have been in power so long they actually think it's a crime to save the taxpayers' money. <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, kind of interesting, interesting times. I do believe and that. They, they, had, they, they had been they had been in power a long time, and I think I think Mitch Daniels said. You know, when he was running, you know, every so often, uh, 16 years, 20 years, the garden needs a little weeding, right? And so uh, anytime one group controls everything for that long, they tend to get a little complacent and maybe not quite as careful with the taxpayer's money and maybe not working quite as hard on behalf of the public. And, you know, competition is a healthy thing all the way around.
2: Yeah, for the record, you're, you're referring to GOP Chairman Gordon Dernille at the time. Um, one of the keys to, to you defeating John Mutz in 1988 was the fact that you were able to unify the Democratic Party. Uh, Frank O'Bannon uh, started out as the candidate for governor uh, in that race, and the two of you joined together with uh, O'Bannon as, as your running mate. What did it take to convince him to uh, take the number two spot? Well, the most important
1: thing about all that is uh, the character of Frank O'Bannon. I mean, he was older than me. He'd served in the state Senate as a Democratic leader for a long time. Uh, And by all rights, you know, he would have thought, you know, hey, this younger uh, individual should be my running mate, not the other way around. And so it really was an act of uh, statesmanship on Frank's part. Uh, to agree to 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 uh, run as my lieutenant governor. And uh, as you recall, Jim, we're getting back to a previous question here, Frank actually kept his name on the ballot, which I agreed with, in case the Supreme Court took me off, right? So that he would be there and would be the gubernatorial nominee in case I was ruled to be invalid. But if, if I my uh, residency was upheld, which it was, then we would run as a team and he would serve as uh, lieutenant governor. But the, the main thing is, that just shows a kind of human being uh, that everybody who knows Frank O'Bannon knew him to be, which was, uh, you know, modest, uh, not egotistical, uh, interested in you know, doing the right thing, the greater good, not just all about you know, him and his own uh, ambitions or that sort of thing. So uh, what did it take to convince Frank? Uh, we had a couple of conversations where we just kind of talked about the, the political realities of the situation. And it was, you know, more likely than not that if we had a primary, I would prevail. But that the consequence of that would be to create ill will and spend resources and things that would just make it harder to win in the fall. And so Frank was willing to kind of step back and say, OK, what really matters here is not so much who's at the top of the ticket, but that we together prevail in the fall. And that really is what um, uh, led him to making his decision. And uh, it was just an act of real character and statesmanship on, on his part, putting the greater good ahead of his own uh, personal ambition.
2: The biggest issue in the fall race was your criticism of the deal to bring Subaru Isuzu to West Lafayette. Any regrets about how that issue was handled at this point in your life?
1: Not really, Jim. I think it was mischaracterized. As you'll recall, uh, I'll explain myself here. As you'll recall, I think t- Tennessee had gotten a Nissan plant. And I want to say Illinois had gotten a Mitsubishi plant and maybe Kentucky had gotten a Toyota plant. There, Other states were bidding for these and I think that the um, uh, governor and lieutenant governor just decided, particularly the lieutenant governor, that they needed one of these uh, for what they believe were the, uh, the merits of the case. But then also politically that we hadn't you know, been outcompeted by neighboring states. and This was going to be a feather in their cap. So when you look at the amount of state incentives per job created, they were just way off the charts in comparison to uh, other states and i think that that was uh proven and validated uh why uh, to get back to your uh the underlying uh premise of your question when toyota decided to locate that big facility down in southwest indiana the amount of incentives that we offered them was substantially substantially less per job so i know some people characterize that or thought it was anti-japanese it wasn't i was willing to give incentives to a japanese company to locate a, another automobile plant in our state, but I thought it ought to be a good deal for the taxpayers, and we were able to, uh, you know, get a, a much better deal. So, to the extent anyone misconstrued that as in any way um, derogatory to people of Japanese descent, well, I would regret that, but that's not that was not the intention or the underlying uh, reason for the um, for the criticism. It was just that they way overpaid, and I would have leveled the same criticism if it had been a Swedish company or an English company or a German company.
2: So you went on to serve two terms as governor. And for me, looking back, uh, the biggest change that resulted uh, during that time was the advent of legalized gambling. Would you take any issue with that?
1: Well, as you recall, um, there were two phases to all that. Uh, the state constitution had to be amended, and it was the same year I was elected governor. Uh, it had to pass, what, twice? Is that the mechanism uh, so in any event, uh, the uh, the voters had authorized the creation of a lottery. And uh, so I didn't have any uh, problem with the lottery because we were actually having millions of dollars flow out of people p- who we were playing the lottery. They were right. just playing the Illinois lottery or the you know other states lottery. So better to keep those um, uh, better to keep those dollars at home. So I didn't have a, a problem with all that and you know, readily supported that. Uh, then the uh, riverboat gaming thing came along. And as you recall, that got embedded and I was sort of agnostic about that. I didn't, you know, I mean, I was not a proponent. It was nothing I was uh, in you know, favor of, but I wasn't out there crusading against it either. But as you recall, that thing got stuck into a budget uh, that was just way out of whack. And I think the Republican leaders in the state legislature were trying to saddle me with a tax increase by having a budget that was just spending way more than we thought was going to be coming in. And one of the ways they got the Democrats to support the damn thing was by putting that uh, riverboat legislation in there. So I ended up vetoing it. So that that, the riverboat legislation ended up uh, being passed over my veto. But I vetoed it largely because of, uh, well, almost solely because of what I felt was just an irresponsible, fiscally irresponsible budget. Um, not so much the, uh, the riverboat part of it, which they, they had used that as a mechanism to appeal to certain Democrats to support what was otherwise just not a, not a sound budget.
2: What, what do you think was your biggest accomplishment as governor?
1: Well, uh. Uh, You've covered me long enough to know that uh, I am genuinely fiscally more moderate to conservative. That's not just a political slogan. So I think the fact that we were able to navigate eight years, never had a tax increase, and left the state with with what at that time was the largest uh, budget surplus in state history was a good thing. We'd also been able to cut the uh, auto license uh, tax in uh, very substantially. Many of our listeners here today may not appreciate, but you know, it used to be the tax when you've got a, a license plate for your car was very, very high, uh, much higher than it is today. So we were able to able to cut that. So I think the whole fiscal management of the state, through good times and bad, uh, really, you know, and, and sending a message to the business community around the country that if you come and invest in Indiana. If you put capital into Indiana and try and grow a business, hire people, that regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge, the fiscal situation in the state is going to be responsible and solid. And so I think that that was a a good accomplishment. Um, We were able to raise K through 12 funding uh, every year, even in the tough 90-91 period. Uh, It wasn't a lot, but we were able to do it during those two years as well. And so I'm proud of that. I think we made some significant strides in the environmental arena in terms of uh, water quality standards and um, th- those license plates you see around the state for the Hoosier Environmental Trust. that We started that uh, with Bart Peterson's ABLE leadership while I was governor. And then I think probably the thing that's uh, closest to my heart is the 21st Century Scholars Program, which enables um, families of more modest means for their children uh, to go to college. And to get a college degree without taking on the enormous amounts of debt that too many of our young people have to do today. And so it, it, I am never happier than when someone will come up and introduce themselves to me and um, tell me they're a 21st century scholar and what a difference that's made to their lives. Because there are maybe more than 100,000 of them now out there. And uh, that's my that's my my favorite thing. Governor, Governor Pence is kind enough to name it for me. Uh, uh, you know, everybody loves you when you're gone. <laughs>
2: um, well, yeah, I have a self-serving question here during your time as governor. I did a weekly interview with you. Uh, we would, uh, have a little visit every Friday and, uh, we would, uh, package up an interview that aired on the Sunday evening news. Um, and I took a lot of criticism from Republicans, uh, for creating that platform, um, and I had a, a, a favorite answer for them. They would they would accuse me of asking you softball questions. And I would uh, say to them, get your own governor. We'll treat him the same way. Uh, <laughs> well, t- touche. Besides, if I, if I was half as bad as they were claiming,
1: they should have wanted me to be out there on TV so people could see.
0: And Jim, I'm sure Jim, I'm sure McDaniel and Rex Thurley love that answer.
2: <laughs> well, which, I, which, which, I was, was, I, I, was saying, I, I, I have I go, go ahead, Jim. Well, when Mike Pence became governor, he, he came up to me one day and said, I want to do that interview you did with Evan Bye. So, huh.
1: Well, uh, I was sorry to see that Rex was um, ill. I've been uh, exchanging um, texts with his son, Pat. And Rex and I, I, obviously, there's no fiercer Republican than Rex Early, but he and I actually became friendly because my first um, political incarnation, as Robert pointed out, was the Secretary of State. And we had the the closest uh, congressional race in the country it was by 46 votes on election night up there in the district that centered around South Bend and Elkhart. And so after a while, Rex and I would just start driving up there and back together. So we'd spend three and a half hours in the car each way. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to swear until uh, I spent that amount of time with Rex in the car. In any event, yeah, I was the chairman of the recount commission. So that all came down. uh Judge Hamilton, uh, now Judge Hamilton, it all came down to one precinct, Bago 76, I want to say, in Elkhart. And in any event, it was a big Republican precinct. So if that precinct got thrown out, uh, it was going to elect the Democrat. And if that precinct got counted, it was going to elect the Republican. Well, the ballots hadn't been stored quite correctly. Uh, There had been a lock not placed on the... There was no evidence of fraud, no evidence of tampering, no evidence that there was anything wrong, but all the appropriate procedures had not been followed to the letter and so um, the good good judge Hamilton voted he said there's there are technical uh, violations here the ballots should be thrown out and Rex early of course voted to count the ballots I, I'd run on a platform of trying to if to, if you could determine the voters intent uh, in if even if there was some kind of imperfection in the absence of you know evidence of fraud or wrongdoing if you knew what the voter wanted to do you should count their vote. So uh, I cast a tie-breaking vote in favor of counting the ballots, which I thought was the right thing to do, and essentially seating the Republican. And so whatever else Rex knew about me, he knew that I was honest. And uh, I gather that was not uh, always common in his experience in politics. So um, in any event, he and I always had a very good relationship. And I'm just sorry that he's, um, he's ill.
2: Um, it, so you, uh, uh, after, um, I, I wanted to say at the, at the very end, I guess, of your service as governor, uh, you started to, to to play more of a role in national politics, and and I have to believe that one of the the highlights of your career was delivering the keynote address at the nineteen ninety six uh, Democratic convention. Uh, that, that, that that was one of the lowlights. Well, it didn't work out the way it was planned. I know that uh, it, being chosen for that, it, it had to be a highlight. The way it played out, as I recall, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, stayed on stage a little too long, and 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 you you ended up uh, going on after prime time, correct? It, it was quite well, a- yeah. What happened there was yeah,
1: she ran over, and uh, George Stephanopoulos kind of set that whole thing up. But she so she ran over, so uh uh when- at the end of her speech the lights in the house went up and uh everybody thought the thing was over and they started streaming toward the exit so i'm sitting there looking at a stadium full of people all of whom have decided the night's over and they're leaving i mean all of them leaving and so i'm kind of i just had to kind of soldier on and speak to essentially a room that was rapidly emptying out and uh, it was just that was a uh, that was a tough assignment so when it was all over I went backstage, and the main media guy said, that was a disaster. And he said, what do you mean? I said, didn't you see what was going on out there? He said, no. I was looking at the TV screen. All I care about is what people see at home, and it looked great on TV. And I said, no kidding. And he said, and and what else? He said, nobody cares about a political convention. Nobody was going to tune in to watch that, but your ratings were a lot higher because all over the East Coast, people tuned in because they thought they were going to get the local weather at 1120. Not some <laughs> political convention, and, and there you were. So, <laughs> in, in any event, it was that was a really hard assignment. I, I kind of feel, forgive me, using a technical term, got a little screwed there. But it ended up having the silver lining that it looked okay on TV, and I actually had a larger uh, television audience. <laughs> so I should you, do an oral history. I should do an oral history someday because there are just all these great stories that, uh, whenever I lose my mental capacity, if it's not already gone, will. Uh, will go with me
0: well since hogsett wrote your thesis or wrote a thesis you can if you want to choose me for the oral history that you know nice little bipartisan i voted for you twice i think i voted oh. for you in 92 because that was i i just couldn't is be this, turned is, on is, to is, vote is, is, is it is this a public confession roger <laughs> well i confessed it on indiana weekend in review one time shellett dimed me out because he knew and what? then I voted for you in uh, 98 in uh, 2004 because, you know, part of part of it because of my mother's uh, loyalty to the By family. I mean, her her thoughts and her opinion of, of your dad and your mom were just so incredibly high. And my mother was in the Marine Corps and she was oh. fiercely, fiercely loyal. And, you know, uh, even uh, there's a lot of Republicans. I mean, let's let's be honest here. Uh, if if a. Huge percentage of Republicans didn't think that you a would be a good, good governor, or b weren't already a good governor. Then you know the results on those two elections uh, would have been somewhat different. Uh, but but to be well, able to no, win, no.
1: people were willing to look beyond the party labels and look at the the individual human beings. In this case, me, and render a, a verdict on me rather than just the party to which I happened to happen to belong. And besides, Robert, I, you know, I've, I've got a just a lot of Republican friends. And as you point out, a lot of Republicans voted for me. And I, I used to say to people, um, you know, you gotta, my Republican friends, I used to say, you gotta vote for at least one Democrat to prove you're open minded. So <laughs> it may as well be me.
0: I voted for you. And then I always voted for, you know, Andy Jacobs, because of just the man, the man, he was, uh, such a terrific, terrific Hoosier. Uh, when you look at what, Mitch Daniels is able to accomplish, in particularly his two thousand eight reelect. Did it seem familiar to you? In other words, you know, okay, it's a Republican state, but Daniels' margin in two thousand eight clearly was representative of of a of a higher level of popularity when I was working for Greg Ballard and was basically his you know principal speechwriter and p r person or whatever. I would tell him every time you speak, you need to picture the house in Indianapolis that has an Obama sign and a Daniels sign because they just want results and honesty and, and high character. And so when you see what, what Daniels was able to accomplish in, in his land you say, look, see a bunch of my fellow Democrats crossed over and voted for him? Just like a bunch of Daniels fellow Republicans crossed over and voted for me. Well,
1: uh, Mitch, obviously, is a very intelligent person. He's doing a great job at uh, my father's alma mater up there in West Lafayette, and uh, he and I have a good personal relationship. Uh, Sherry was kind enough to come to my wife's memorial service. Mitch would have come. He called me. He said it was his homecoming, so he obviously had to be uh, at Purdue. So I think that's just proof that, um, uh, look, for an election in Indiana, if it's about the party label or the... um, prevailing perception about the underlying ideology of the two parties you know it's just that kind of um uh perception of the republicans will win every time uh the challenge for a democrat is to make it about the individual candidates and their beliefs and ideas and the merits of those beliefs and ideas not the stereotypes uh of the two parties so um but mitch is you know the the fact that uh he could win overwhelmingly at a time when uh, President Obama is doing well. Um, that shows the, that he obviously had a lot to offer. that Hoosiers, um, he being Mitch Daniels, had a lot to offer that uh, Hoosiers embraced.
0: Jim, do you want to take uh, the governor through his two Senate runs real quick?
2: Well, yeah, I think at the, the pace we're going, we're not going to we're not going to get through them for in in great detail. But but Senator, you. Uh, you took two years off after leaving the governor's office uh, to be in the private sector and then ran for the U.S. Senate and won two terms. Um, and you told me uh, at one point that you enjoyed being governor much more than you did being senator uh, because it's it's much better to be a, an executive who's making decisions than to, to be in a legislative body. Did, did I get that right?
1: Oh, uh, you did get that right, Jim. It, look, being governor or senator, they're both a tremendous honor. Uh, but uh, they're just so different. If you're an executive, you're making decisions. I mean, it's a much harder job. It's a 24-7 job. I mean, things happen in the middle of the night. Things happen on holidays, Sundays. I mean, it's just you're, you're just always on the clock. But you're also making things happen. And uh, I just find that that's What motivates me to be in public life is to try and make good things happen that will enable people to make the most of their own lives. And I think you just do that more as an executive, whether it's mayor, governor, president, than you do in a legislative body. Uh, And you combine that with the so in the Senate, uh, if you're intellectually curious, it's a great place. I mean, you have national issues, global issues. I was dealing with national security issues on the Armed Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee. Which post nine eleven took on a whole, you know, new level of importance, uh, and we dealt with the financial uh, crisis, which we came very, very close to having a second Great Depression, uh, the first impeachment of a president since eighteen uh, sixty eight, um, and um, you know, I, I mentioned the terrorist attack and the you know, financial panic. So there was a lot going on. But months go by, and you don't do anything, and then it just also gets back to just my underlying temperament and character, which I think is, um, I'm a pragmatist, you know, i I've got my principles and that sort of thing, but I like to make progress. And if I can't get everything I want, well, then I'm going to try and get as much done as I can. Washington has just become so partisan and, uh, people care more about, um, you know, politics. Than they, they do about uh, really making progress for the people they were sent there to serve. And it's become very ideological. You get these folks who are just, and they're on both sides, all or nothing. Well, if you take an all or nothing approach, most of the time, nothing is what you're going to get. And so I'm just not wired that way. I'm, you know, feel like we ought to try and get as much done as we can and that's just not Congress right now. So that's why I ended up retiring after two years in the, uh, in the Senate. Plus Susan convinced me that there was nothing dishonorable about paying for our son's college. So um, there, there was that too, but it's just, <laughs> the Congress has said since my father's time. Oh, and even when I began, it's just uh, you know, um, it's just not the way what we it used to be. We were all hopefully good individuals who were sent to a place. We happen to belong to different political parties. But, but being an American was more important than being a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative. And there just aren't many people who are willing to look at it that way these days. And I think that's wrong. I think it's harmful to the, the country, but it seems to be the place that we're at right now.
2: At one point, at one point, you took a look at running for president Uh it started to put together a campaign. Um, it didn't go very far. Um, describe that experience. Well, you know, I forgot to take my medicine there for a brief
1: period of time. And once I got back on the meds and was thinking more clearly, I figured out that I'm joking, of course, that wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, yeah. Well, it goes back to my experience as governor. And you know uh, you care about the country you care about doing everything you can to uh, uh, you know help as many people as you can. I'd been successful in a very red state and the re- Republicans had controlled the White House for a while so thought that maybe my approach might have some appeal to the places that we needed to do to to, to be successful uh, but then what happened was uh, the Democratic Party did very well in the midterm elections and so rather than figuring out like they did with Bill Clinton look we need a moderate to, you know, to win, uh, the prevailing view became, well, we can really still be really liberal and still win. And, you know, clearly that wasn't going to be me. So um, uh, I didn't want to run for president. There are some people who do just, it's it's just kind of on their, their bucket list and they're not going to go to their graves happy unless they've run for president, no matter how improbable uh, success might be. I'm not one of those people. If there was a, a realistic chance of being successful, and actually being in a position to uh, help the country and help our people? Well, then I would sacrifice everything and go for it. But if it was just about my ego, well, I didn't need to do it for that reason. And so basically, Jim, I concluded that in that prevailing uh, political environment, if if the Democrats hadn't done as well as they did in the midterm elections, because the American public was kind of unhappy about the state of affairs in Iraq under then President Bush, I probably would have run. And I think I would have had a decent chance. But because of the results of the midterm and the, the effect that had upon the prevailing view of primary voters uh, in the National Democratic Party, I just I thought it was not winnable.
2: Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said that every member of the U.S. Senate uh, hears hail to the chief wafting from under the bed when he wakes in the morning. I, you, you're saying that's not the case with you. <laughs> well, most of them probably hear it when they
1: go to sleep at night, too. But um, no, it was not, you know, it's more of a practical thing. You know, look, running for president is a, uh, a major uh, undertaking and it puts an incredible strain on your family. If you've got young children like we did, uh, you know, it's it's not something to be undertaken lightly and I think should only be undertaken if you feel like you've got a realistic chance of uh, being successful, because after all, it's not just about running and winning an office. It's about having a chance to serve and to do good things for the public. So um, no, in my case, it wasn't. Uh, I I ended up uh, not going forward and have never, I've never second guessed that decision for uh, a moment and will go to my grave without something like that bothering me.
2: And yet you agreed to be considered to be uh, Barack Obama's running mate. Uh, There are conflicting reports about uh, whether you were uh, in the top two or not. Was it your belief that 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 you came in second in that contest? Uh, It is. And I have that on pretty good authority. And
1: uh, obviously, uh, then Senator Biden was picked and he was a great vice president. He's uh, serving as president now. So uh, I mean, he's done great and um, I'm happy for him. Uh, but I've also been led to believe that the deciding factor in the decision was that if um, I had been picked, I would have been replaced in the Senate by a Republican. And when Joe was picked, the Democratic governor of Delaware replaced him with a Democrat. And uh, Harry Reid, who was a leader of the Senate Democrats, was just uh, lobbying then uh, Senator candidate Obama very hard, saying, I, I need every vote I can get. But don't pick uh, don't pick Evan And I think it was kind of a coin flip. Well, it did, I know it was in. Um, Oh, the, uh, it's been in a book by his campaign manager. There was a kind of a coin flip. And so, in that situation, I think it was the, uh, the difference in the Senate seat that made, uh, made the, the final decision.
2: How disappointing was that?
1: It was not disappointing. Uh, it would have been great. I would have embraced it. And it, now that, if that had happened, might have really opened up an avenue to running for president someday. Mm-hmm. And so it would have been, um, a wonderful opportunity to serve, to make a difference, and might have changed uh, my life politically. You know, even beyond that, as has proven to be the case for now, now President Biden. But uh, I'm not someone to um, uh, regret things or that sort of thing. You know, it's uh, you got to be a big, big boy about these things. And he made a good pick. So happened it wasn't me, and that's just uh, how life works, I, I guess. Another way to look at it, Jim, if if you come down. Uh, and it's between you and one other person uh, to be the vice presidential candidate, uh, you know, you must have done some right with your life, right? So uh, I'll, I'll tell you one other story. So they did uh, you know, just an exhaustive background check on me, all my tax records, medical records, you know, social media, everything conceivable. They talked to your wife, they talked to your children, they talked to your parents, your friends. I mean, it was everything. This was a full, uh, you know, full uh, colonoscopy, uh, you know, every which way. So um, I go out to meet him. They fly me in secret out. He was campaigning in uh, St. Louis. So they fly me out uh, there, and I go up to the, the um, back service elevator, and I'm waiting for him in his hotel room when he comes in from campaigning. And he likes sports, the ESPN's on the TV, and we had some cheeseburgers. And then we talked for like three, three and a half hours, and we got along great. But he's got this big stack, like three or four foot high stack of papers. There. He goes, says, you know, this is all the background information on you, and I've gone through it all, and, you know, there's nothing in there that bothers me, but if there's anything about you that my team didn't find, you need to let me know, because it's going to come out, and he said, they're even talking to people I was in first grade with, so, you know, is there anything you think I ought to know, and I said, well, yeah, there's a couple things I think I should tell you, and I did, and he looked at me, and he said, that's it? And I said, well, yeah, that's it. And then he said to me, well, you haven't you haven't led much of a life, have you? (laughs) Uh,
0: I've always enjoyed that. Let me ask a few more, just a few more questions, and then we'll get to the final five questions to be respectful of Governor Evan Bayh's time, our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. I tried to look this up and I couldn't find it, uh, a video clip per se, but it's traditional when you're elected to the United States Senate to have the senior Senator stand behind you when you're being sworn in. Uh, did you have Senator Richard Lugar stand behind you and was, was your father involved in any way?
1: You know, I honestly have no memory. I'm assuming Dick was there and, uh, you know, my father might have been in the gallery, or maybe they let him on the floor. Was he there? I can't recall. But I'm pretty confident Dick was there. I, I don't think my dad played any role in things other than just kind of being you know, proud of the moment. And my wife was definitely there because you. They, they then have a little photo op down in the uh, old Senate uh, chamber, uh, down in the the basement of the Capitol with the then vice president. So I've got one being taking the oath with Al Gore. And I got one uh, taking the oath with with Dick Cheney. And uh, and then your kids are with you. So you get a nice family photo of, with your spouse and your children. And uh, so I'm pretty confident Dick was there, but I honestly have, have no memory of it.
0: Was your father, who obviously was proud of you just for being who you are, let alone the political achievement of winning secretary of state and then governor twice. I mean, he surely knew as well as anyone how Republican Indiana was at the time. Uh, but you, you were able to serve in. We can gently say was his Senate seat something he was certainly remembered by. Uh, is he was he particularly proud that the By family name was reattached to the United States Senate?
1: Oh, I think he was. Uh, well, I think he was proud of me as uh, as a father would be of a son, and hopefully that would have been the case whether I had done something else with my life in business or law or the military or um, higher education or anything like that i think what you know his hope was that his son would be someone of you know sound character who was uh, loyal and you know, patriotic and had a, a good father a, a good husband that sort of thing and the fact that i happened to have some success in politics you know was sort of a cherry on the sunday because you know he liked politics he spent his life in politics but i don't think I was never one of these people. My father did not lay on me. I think Al Gore's father did on him. You know, mm-hmm. you need to go into politics. You're going to be president someday, but no, no, my father, as a matter of fact, bent over backwards to say, you know, if you're going to do this with your life, you need to understand how hard it is and you don't need to do this because your father did. And, and I didn't. So, um, no, I don't think he ever looked at the Senate seat as being proprietary, but, uh, he was sort of, I think proud of me as a person. And then the fact that it had, uh, Know, i achieved some you know high level political success was just kind of you know like i said a cherry on the sunday
0: we should note but that I, al gore's... I think
1: i think I, th- I think as a father he probably would have been just as proud of me uh if i'd lost my first election
0: we should note that al gore's father uh, served in the united states senate from tennessee i believe is that correct jim i think that's right yep yep albert and Gore. um i've i've thought about this a lot just was kind of an interesting aspect of serving in, in politics and government and i've talked about it with other political guests and, and government elected officials who've come on the leaders and legends podcast but there are certainly uh, what exists i like to call political trees and uh, bob Orr, mitch daniels the list goes on and on people who serve in a high office and then the group of people who serve for this elected official go out and uh, strike out and make their mark on their own whether it's um, the list goes on and on you have two former chiefs of staff both of whom uh, served in the indianapolis mayor's office and current including the current one joe hogsett um, fred glass Bill Morrow, the list goes on of the people who worked for you, who have either won high office or have served at a high level in other organizations. Um, How proud are you of them and the impact they've had when the genesis of it, in some ways, was serving in your administration?
1: Well, I am proud of them. uh, But even more than that, I'm grateful to them uh, because, you know, I tell I tell my sons and anybody else who will listen to me that uh, life is a team sport. It's not an individual sport, and particularly political life is definitely a team sport. So you're not going to be any better than the people you surround yourself with, starting with your spouse, starting with your close associates. And, you know, when I became governor, we hadn't had a Democratic governor in 20 years. And I was 32 when I was elected, 33 when I took office. A lot of the people around me were in their early thirties as well. We hadn't been around the state house very long. And in many cases at all, I actually think it was probably a benefit to me. I didn't know any lobbyists around the state house. Well, I'd been secretary of state, but nobody lobbies a secretary of state. So in any event, um, uh, we were able to take kind of a fresh look at things and uh, you know, just bright, intelligent, hardworking, you know, idealistic young people who wanted to make a difference and hopefully bring kind of a, f- a breath of fresh air to things. and You know, my budget directors, Frank Sullivan, Gene Blackwell, Kathy Davis, all fantastic. My counsels, David Hamilton, uh, uh, James Stinson, Matt Gutwine, all fantastic. My chiefs of staff, you mentioned the department heads, um, and they made me successful. And, you know, I am proud of them because we were able to then, and Pam Carter came to Susan's service. You know, she went on to become the first African-American woman attorney general in the nation's history uh joe modest ended up being attorney general and also mm-hmm. marion county prosecutor so there are other you know people out there too and uh but first and foremost they allowed me to be a good governor and then to the extent that that enabled me then to help them go on in their own right to serve the public and to to do good things that makes me happy uh but it's you know and very often they'll tell me that they're grateful but I, as i said i'm i'm grateful to them because it is not a Running something like state government in the state of Indiana, that's not something you do by yourself. You got to have a lot of, a lot of good people um, helping you out. And I should have mentioned Andolini, uh, Jim's a, a good friend as well. I mean, it's, it's, the list goes on and on. I could mention, but um, uh, yeah, I'm proud of them, but I'm also grateful
0: to them. Last question before we get to the final five questions. For years, it was lamented that Indiana's May primary just doesn't ever mean anything it's it's never relevant but in 2008 it was very relevant in the democratic party as barack obama and hillary clinton faced off for the nomination in indianapolis excuse me indiana played a critical role in that campaign as it wound down a was it hard to choose someone to endorse and B, you know Did you get a thrill out of the fact that finally indiana was relevant on a presidential level
1: uh well yes to both questions so to the last one um yeah i mean it's 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 too too bad that our state just is very often taken for granted i mean everybody knows that for the most part we're going to vote for the republican in the fall so they don't pay any attention to us then and usually the nominee is already selected by the time the primary rolls around so I mean, it would be in the best interest of Hoosier citizens to have an earlier primary or if the two national parties decided to rotate uh, dates, something like that. I think that most members in the General Assembly aren't interested in changing the date because they wouldn't want to have a, be dealing with the primary while they're sitting there in Indianapolis in a legislative session. And I get that. But you could uh, you know, have the presidential thing one time and their race is another, might cost you a little money, but if it was in the best interest of our state so that the issues that are important to us and our voices were heard uh, more um, vigorously, then I think it would be a a good thing to do. So yeah, that was great. And it also actually, people ask me how Barack Obama carried the state of Indiana that fall. Well, one of the reasons was the primary, he made 43 campaign appearances in the primary. I don't remember the last, uh, I don't remember the exact figure, but he spent $10, $15, $20 $10, $15, 20000000 million in television advertising in the primary. And it was all positive, right? Uh, Hillary and he weren't, you know, uh, hacking on each other. So he was able to introduce himself in a vacuum uh, to people on the airwaves and to personally be present all over the state. Now, he ended up not winning the primary by 2%, but it actually helped him uh, win the fall election. I think he ended up winning by like a percent or something like that. So you could argue, I think pretty persuasively, that if it hadn't been for the primary, he would have succeeded in the fall in terms of choosing a candidate, yeah, I usually don't get involved in primaries and uh, but in that case, I had just been friendly with um, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton for a long time. He'd been the youngest governor, then I was the youngest governor and uh, you know I just uh, you know had a personal relationship with them and I'm just one of those people that, as I said, normally I wouldn't get involved, but it was a, a former close staff member of mine or someone that was just a good friend well then. I'm willing to put political calculation aside and um, you know, support my friend. And so, uh, and so that's what I did. It was the only state that year, and all 50 of them, where one of the candidates started off ahead but didn't win. Uh, Barack Obama started off eight points ahead, and Hillary Clinton won our state by two. And so, um, yeah, that was quite an experience.
0: We had Kip, too, and Murray Clark on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we talked about that 2008 race because Kip was obviously heavily involved. And he said eg- exactly the same thing that you said. Jim, do you want to weigh in real quick on that primary?
2: Well, it's it's something that we have never seen in Indiana before, and I anticipate we won't see again. I I, I still remember uh, the crowds that showed up for both Hillary and and. Barack Obama, but uh, as as the senator said, forty three campaign visits uh, is just unheard of, and I, I believe uh, Obama made forty nine by the time uh, no, November got here. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, in a state uh, that was believed to be strongly Republican, to to, to see uh, somebody in that circumstance win. Uh, Indiana, I, I I think it's still hard to believe looking back. Well,
1: it was a unique set of circumstances. You had the uh, primary, which enabled uh, our eventual nominee to be introduced to the people of our state personally and over the airwaves in a very positive, very extensive way. Uh, John McCain is actually was a friend of mine, and I admire John, but he was probably not the the best presidential candidate in that particular year uh, made one campaign stop. I think it was the weekend before in Indiana. And as you mentioned, Jim, uh, uh, Barack Obama made another six. So he, and I think continued to just dramatically outspend the Republicans in terms of television advertising, direct mail, you know, all that stuff uh, made a huge difference because the national Republicans probably rightfully concluded, Hey, if we got to spend money in Indiana, we're, we're toast. So we'll just take a chance on losing Indiana to put the money into other places. And then finally, in that first campaign, uh, uh, then Senator Obama was able to present himself as a, a moderate candidate who favored uh, cutting taxes for the middle class and some other things that you know, would resonate pretty well with swing voters in Indiana. And um, you know, a combination of all those things and the fact he's just an enormously talented uh, you know, political figure uh, enabled him to carry our state by, I think, like half a percent. I remember the final... Campaign event, I would, you know, I campaigned with him in Lafayette, Terre Haute, my hometown. The final campaign event was up there, I was saying Wicker Park in, um, in Lake County. And they must have had forty five, fifty thousand 50,000 people there. It was quite the, uh, quite the event. So it was, people say, well, winning Indiana is possible. But you kind of go through the analysis and it is possible. But it took a, a confluence of some pretty, um, uh, of some factors that are, as you point out, Jim, unlikely to reoccur.
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that you'd have to be a pretty hardcore partisan not to acknowledge that Barack Obama's 2008 campaign was was less of a campaign and more of just a phenomenon. It was just unreal. Hope and change.
2: (laughs) One of the key factors, one of the key factors was that during that primary, um, they had all sorts of staff here and they collected contact information for thousands and thousands of voters and they used email in in ways that other campaigns haven't so the presence that they had in the spring really made a difference in the fall electronically uh, if no other way
1: yeah no that was uh that was one of the great political uh successes in modern indiana political history uh them carrying it hadn't happened since lbj and LBJ won every state, but like four or five. So um, yeah, hats, hats off to everyone who was involved in that.
0: We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Uh, Governor Evan By, are you ready? Fire away. If I'm not ready now, I guess I never will be. Well, the easier questions than you ever got from Shella, that's for sure. Huh. Number one, what was your first job?
1: Well, when I was a teenager, I worked construction a few summers, and uh, my parents were both from uh, farming backgrounds, and so they felt that uh, hard physical labor would be uh, good for me, and it was. It convinced me that uh, getting a good education was probably a a valuable thing to do. So I worked construction, um, laid railroad track one summer, did just general construction work around a a housing development another summer. But then uh, as an adult, after I finished my law degree, my first job was uh, there in the um, federal building in Indianapolis. It's now named for my dad. Wasn't in those days, but I clerked for a wonderful man, federal judge named uh, James Noland. Uh, So that was my first uh, job uh, out of school. But my first job's all involved, you know, kind of construction, uh, heavy labor
0: kind of things. Second question. What was your first concert?
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, this is going to date me a little bit. The, the first concert I can remember going to in high school was probably, I think, the Almond Brothers band. Uh, and then there were hey, a couple that's pretty flat. good. Yeah, well, they they were good. Um, I think that was after Dwayne died, though. So, uh, in any event, uh, Dickie Betts kind of picked up the slack uh, from then on. Uh, when I was down at IU, this is really going to date me. I think they had an Earth, Wind, and Fire show. Uh, and who else I, I remember going to see, I'm going to see Dan Fogelberg was in a smaller earth, one in fire was in assembly hall. I think Dan Fogelberg was in a smaller, uh, uh, venue down there. And, um, I think that was back in the day when John Mellencamp went by a little bit different. Uh, he went by his full name, but, uh, if you could catch John, John is just great live. And back then, um, he's kind of a work in progress. And if you could catch him at, uh, one of the local places around town, that was always a, a good show too.
0: Greg Ballard's first concert was Sly and the Family Stone on Blo- Bloomington's I campus. I, was, I,
1: I, I saw them when I was in high school, too. <laughs> Number three. She, you- see, 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 Jim, all this stuff about me you never asked.
2: I, I didn't ask any of that I, <laughs>
0: hey, and you know for the republicans who were bitching that shella doesn't ask uh evan by hard questions we should know that we can see jim's office here on zoom and the sagamore he has on his wall is signed by evan by would you like to comment on oh. that shella
2: <laughs> well i just said if you point that out I, I do have to point out i've got two others but but i'm still uh, but he, he he throws darts
1: at that one so uh <laughs> So one, we got to get on with these questions, but one of my favorite things was it appeared in Time Magazine, so the, the Rolling Stones, which I like the Rolling Stones, they were doing a concert at, um, I think it was the RCA Dome, whatever it was called back in the day, and so uh, I went, and they had a little thing in Time Magazine, it said when the Rolling Stones played in Indianapolis, the governor, uh, the Speaker of the House, who was Paul Manweiler at that time, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who was Randy Shepard said the governor, the speaker of the house and the chief justice of the Supreme court were all in attendance and all were younger than Mick Jagger.
0: I was there too. I was there too. (laughs) Were you younger than Mick Jagger?
2: I still am.
0: (laughs) Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
2: Oh,
1: uh, well, um, gosh, whenever you've been through a difficult time in your life, it makes you a little reflective about the nature of life and all that sort of thing. So, um, I uh, spend a little time with the new Testament. Uh, I think that always kind of puts life in perspective. Uh, and then, um, I love biographies and I love history. Uh, Ulysses S Grant when he was dying, uh, wrote an autobiography called Grant and it's a, it's a great read. And there's a, um, uh, a, um, recent biography of Thomas Jefferson, I think is very balanced, came out, came out when my wife got sick. So I'd read the first few chapters and then put it down and didn't pick it up again until she passed. But it's uh, called Thomas Jefferson, Architect of American Liberty. And that's an excellent read, too. So Harry Truman once said that uh, the only thing about the future that we do not know is the history we've forgotten. And uh, that's not entirely true. Uh, somebody else said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so I'd say read as much history as you can and read as much of the lives of great men and women as you can and learn from learn from them about what went well and also what didn't.
0: This is next question right up your alley then. If you could witness any event in history be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Well, there are a whole lot, uh, you know, um, I mean, you can, well, they're just a whole lot, but uh, I'd say I'll pick Normandy landings. And the reason for that is uh, mankind came uh, very close to being controlled by uh, an evil despot and a, uh, a political ideology that was just abhorrent to everything that we in our country believe in. Uh, sanctity of life, human dignity, individual freedom, all that, and an entire continent was for several years um, overrun by just, uh, well, uh, by fascism, Nazism, all that kind of thing. And uh, so uh, the Russians bore the brunt of all that. But when we landed in France there, and, and if you ha- to any of your listeners, if you haven't been to the uh, American Cemetery oh. in Normandy, if you have a chance, you should go. I got there with my wife and my two young sons. I think they were, I don't know, 11 or 12 at the time. And it's just the sun was going down. They were closing the place up. And we just walked through the rows of crosses and stars of David, 18, 19, 20-year-old young men who willingly went to sacrifice themselves themselves for their country and hopefully what our country uh, stands for. And there is no more noble thing than that. And so, uh, we should honor them. And, um, uh, I think I'd pick that.
0: My advice would be to take your, take your tissues. You're going to need them. Hmm. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, uh,
1: wow. Anyone. Well, there's so many there, but, um, uh, well, if one of my sons would actually tell me what they were really thinking, I'd pick one of them. But you know, twenty-five-year-old young men can be kind of uh, taciturn. Maybe they shared more things. With their, they're both wonderful sons. We love each other dearly. But I think maybe they shared more about their lives with their mom than they have so far with me. But putting all that aside, I'd say uh, uh, I'd say Xi Jinping, the, the president of China, with the with the uh, understanding that somebody had put sodium pentothal in his tea. And he would tell me what he was really thinking, because I think the next half century uh, is going to be defined by uh, two things, at least our place in the world is going to be defined by two things. One is China, and the other is technology. And increasingly, those two things are overlapping. Um, the Chinese, are they have a plan to try and dominate five or six key technologies, uh, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. Uh, and some other areas, uh, 5G and uh, uh, we are going to be challenged. And so uh, getting some real insight into what they really think and what they really plan and how far they're willing to go and what they really think of us. By the way, I think they don't think much of us. They think we're declining power and they look at all of our internal divisions and they just think that that's our weakness. And so uh, maybe the last thing I'll say is that that should serve as a wake-up call for all of us, because there's no doubt in my mind that we can compete with the Chinese. And there's no doubt in my mind, as inventive as we are, that we can compete with them in the area of technology. But we're not going to do that as deeply divided and polarized and hitting on each other as, as we currently are. And so we really have the potential to create a great new future for our nation and for those we love, like my son's but it ain't going to happen by accident. Uh, It's up to us to make it that way. And so I think that is really the challenge facing this generation of Americans is not primarily external. It's internal and realizing that we have a lot more in common as Americans than we do these superficial things uh, that people are obsessing over. And the final, final thing I'd mention, I heard Bill Clinton say this once, and I never fact-checked it, but I'm reasonably confident it's true, when they finished mapping the human genome a few years ago, the DNA, what kind of makes us all what we are as homo sapiens, they discovered that uh, all of us, every one of us, black and white, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, regardless of religion or ethnicity or any of that stuff, we have 98% of our DNA is the same and yet we end up obsessing over the other 2% so much. Some of that's understandable. Some of that's necessary. But boy, we've got to find a way to come together as Americans and human beings uh, because we've got a common destiny and um, it's not going to be what it should be if we're fighting uh, amongst ourselves the way we currently are. So I, I view the primary challenge to America today as being internal.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer along with co-host Jim Shella, Our guest today has been former Indiana governor and United States Senator, Evan Bayh. Thank you so much for your time. It was absolutely a delight and an honor to get a chance to talk with you.
1: Robert, my pleasure. Good luck to you and Jim.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.